0: Good afternoon, and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey survey link after today's activity, and if you are viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon section at the bottom of your screen. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Supriya Manapali, she earned her medical degree from Manipal University, Katsubura Medical College in Mangalore, India. She completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Tennessee, College of Medicine at Chattanooga, and a fellowship in infectious diseases at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville. She is board certified in infectious disease. Her areas of special interest include general infectious diseases, HIV management, hospital epidemiology, and antibiotic steward. Dr. Manipali has been named a fellow by the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the nation's leading infectious diseases professional society. Join me in welcoming Dr. Manipali. Thank you,
1: Thank you Jennifer. Um, I'll- and thank you for attending the CME today. Um, actually, after almost two years, I'm presenting on a non-COVID topic. So I think, um, so I'm really looking forward to this as well. And this is a topic that's been postponed many, many times. So um, hopefully we'll learn something together. I have no relevant disclosures. And I'll, I will have several cases throughout the presentation. And um, I'll start with this one. 53-year-old male with diabetes mellitus, um, insulin-dependent, coming in with fevers, fatigue, dosha vomiting for three days. It's noted to have an anterior abdominal wall abscess at the insulin injection site, and blood cultures grew methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, and the echo showed valve endocarditis with possible early signs of aortic root abscess. Patient received IV nafcillin six weeks after the aortic valve replacement surgery. So when it comes to Staph aureus, this is a bug that actually, um, I would say in the world of the bugs, if you call it the super villain or the superhero, it's bestowed with so many virulence factors to uh, cause severe infections. Um, so it's a faculty to so it can survive in that environment as well. It's the gram-positive bacteria, and it looks like clusters of uh, grapes. And um, and it actually derives its name by how it looks, actually. Staphyl means gray-like, and aureus means golden. So golden yellow colonies on the agar um, is how uh, it looks like, um, and that's how it got the name. Got the name. And it's coagulase positive. And some other characteristics of this virus is that it's catalyst positive, which means that... That can that enzyme can neutralize hydrogen peroxide. So again, it helps uh, the virus uh, or the uh, the bacteria to be more pathogenic and protected. And when it comes to Staph aureus, it can live, in our, it live on our skin, sometimes even in the throat, in the nails, and 20 to 30% of human population is um, at least uh, expected to be colonized with that. It's salt tolerant. It also can persist on the fomites for very long periods. And if you look at the cell wall structure again, the capsule is antigenic, antiphagocytic, which means it protects the bacteria from the phagocytes. And the tyconic acid, the protein A, all of these are part of the virulence factors and also have protect, uh, protect the bacteria. Uh, So if you look at this, again, look at the adhesins, the autolysins, the superantigens, the proteases, the immunoglobulin-binding proteins, the leukocidins, each of them. I mean, I'm not going into the details of what each one of them does, but if you just see how... uh, much how many virulence factors this particular bacteria has that can cause the severe infections that we see with staph aureus. And um, again, when I was preparing the le- lecture, I was looking at okay, what am I going to focus on? Because if I was giving this lecture to a group of microbiologists or infectious diseases providers, it would look very different than if I'm trying to give a talk to um, one of uh, for to just make sure I'm covering the basics of how we manage infections from staph. Aureus, um, in the blood. And the other thing we need to remember with Staph aureus is its ability to form biofilm. Biofilm is a layer that falls because of the production of the polysaccharide where actually the bacteria can hide inside that matrix and evade killing of the uh, bacteria by the antibiotics. And they can be, de- and this one, this matrix can detach, and the bacteria can release from that and cause recurrent infections. Usually we talk about biofilm in the setting of some sort of foreign body, catheters, prosthetic joints, spinal hardware, prosthetic heart valves, and CNS shunts, or any other foreign body. And the reason it's important to remember this, that's why we should ask in the history if the patient has any processes or hardware, is because in the presence of hardware, because of the formation of the biofilm, The antibiotics we are giving may kill the bacteria circulating in the blood at the time, but the ones that are trapped in this biofilm matrix may evade the killing and can lead to recurrence of the bacteria. The next case is of a 33-year-old male admitted for acute gastroenteritis and develops fever, redness of the hand, arm, swelling on day three of the hospitalization at the INT site, noted to have superficial thrombus, blood cultures positive for mssa repeat blood cultures are negative in 48 to 72 hours and transesophageal echo negative for endocarditis and the one thing why I, the first case i showed and the second case that i'm sharing here we're talking about those who are doing something whether it was the insulin injections or here a patient had an IV site. Again, staph aureus lives on the skin. If we don't perform good hand hygiene, we don't do these procedures the way they're supposed to be done, taking all the precautions that can skin is our best protection and armor. These bacteria can go in and cause infection, not just locally, but also systemic. Like in this particular patient who developed thrombophlebitis, septic thrombophlebitis, and bacteremia. And this patient was treated with four weeks of IV cefazolin. This next patient is a 67-year-old male who had right knee replacement surgery, has history of recurrent skin infections, and three weeks after the surgery develops pain, redness involving the knee, swelling of the knee, fever, and the cultures from the synovial fluid grew MRSA, And blood culture is also positive for MRSA. Some of these infections can be um, so severe and lead to such morbidity, not just the mortality, because once the bacteria gets into the blood, we're talking about the risk of endocarditis, metastatic focus of infection, anywhere from head to toe, including the spine, the abdomen, of course, the heart causing endocarditis. And not only that, these infections are not or cannot be cured by just giving antibiotics. The prosthesis has to be removed, give antibiotics, ensure after they finish the treatment that the synovial fluid cultures are negative before you put the prosthesis back. So one of the very important things we recommend as part of infection prevention control procedures is that those who are going for elective joint replacement surgeries are screened to see if they're colonized, with MRSA or MSSA. I think of these two as twins that look different. They both behave exactly the same way, it's just the choice of antibiotics are different. And if they're positive, they're decolonized with CHG and Bactroban for five to seven days before the surgery, and if they're positive for MRSA, then the choice of the antibiotics pre-op should include vancomycin along with cefazolin. This is something that should be done, that should be required to be done before surgeries so that we reduce the risk of post-op infection and that do not lead to all these complications in the patients. Even post-op wound care, hand hygiene also are extremely important to prevent these infections. This patient received IV daptomycin for six weeks and when we discharge patients with IV antibiotics, we're not just talking about, of course, the risk of CDA for all these things. We're placing a line that can get infected, risk of thrombosis. So again, that risk of infection from that also can be high. So talking of Staph aureus or any bacteria, I'm a big believer that these bugs lived for millions of years before us and are going to outlive us. They're so smart. Penicillin was 1940s, I think, Alexander... Fleming, uh, he discovered penicillin, and by 1950s, we were seeing penicillin-resistant staph aureus. Then humans, being smart, came up with methicillin. Then next thing that happened is methicillin-resistant staph aureus in the next few years. And over the course of the last decades, we have seen how um, we're seeing more and more staph MRSa. And also in MRSA, there are variants. There is the community-acquired, the USA 300 strain, that causes more necrotizing pneumonia, metastatic metastatic infections, septic emboli, and the healthcare-associated or hospital-acquired MRSA. But even those lines have really blurred in the last few years. And as if that's not enough, there have been reports of vancomycin resistant staph aureus, vancomycin intermediate staph aureus. So again, we have to be very, very um, this is where stewardship comes. Don't use antibiotics when not needed, but when you do you do use the antibiotics, use the right drug, right dose for the right duration. So you cure the infection, do not lead to more resistance. And the gene that leads or codes for the methicillin resistance is the MEC A gene. And that's what the Staph aureus PCR is testing for. That's what we use. That's why if the PCR detects the MECHA gene, that will be identified as MRSA. If that gene is negative, it will be identified as MSSA. And I mentioned about the USA 300. When I was in residency, this was something we were seeing a lot that was early 2000s um, where uh, patients uh, would come, very young patients, otherwise healthy, would come with this really bad necrotizing pneumonia, bacteremias, and then will develop endocarditis, osteomyelitis, other focus of infection. And this is because of the USA 300 strain of the Staph aureus. And if you look at the sensitivities of this particular strain, would be more susceptible to oral, there would be more options to treat it if it was not in the blood, um, but then the one that was hospital-acquired would be more resistant. But again, those lines have blurred a lot over the years as well. And more and more, we're seeing patients coming in with staph aureus in the blood who have an implantable foreign body of some type, almost half the patients in this particular study. And also, as I mentioned, we're seeing a lot of the USA 300. Also, um, we're isolating that more. And when it comes to staph aureus infections, again, there is no part of the body that is spared. Can cause brain abscess, cerebritis, ventriculitis. A patient we're seeing now um, had a small left chest wall abscess but um, did not take the antibiotics for that. Now presenting with MRSA, bacteremia, endocarditis, renal infox, splenic infox, and also um, CNS infection. CNS infox with cerebritis, ventriculitis, subagnoid hemorrhage, and I'm sure if we image more when we can, we'll find other metastatic focus infection. And the one thing I want to mention here is how the reports look for us here at NGHS. MRSA in the blood or MSSA in the blood, any staph warriors in the blood should be treated with IV antibiotics. So we worked with our micro lab and thanks to their help, the way we report it here in our NGHS lab is we only give IV options so that the providers passively were guiding them to choose IV options only. And the rifampin and gentamicin has a one superfix and that's in case... Anyone wants to use that along with the IV, Vanco, or Oxicillin. This is an MSSA in the blood culture, so oxacillin is susceptible. And some of you may ask, why is Cefazolin not here? Because oxicillin susceptibility is what you're going to use as your surrogate marker to use Cefazolin. The lab does not test for that separately. And this is the positive with MSSA in the blood, where Staph aureus is reported as positive. And this is MRSA. Again, the oxacillin is resistant and vancomycin is susceptible with an MIC of 1. We'll get back to that later, but I want you to note that remember that MIC of 1. And This is staph aureus in the blood. And the PCR is so sensitive that you do not need to wait for the culture full report to come back to make antibiotic choices or changes. It's more than 90% sensitive, or I would even say higher 90% sensitive just based on our experience. You just can't put 100% stamp on any test, but it's highly sensitive. So once the PCR tells you if it's MSSA or MRSA, you can go ahead and make the antibiotic changes. And mortality for Staph or is bacteremia is 20 to 40%. And each day a patient is bacteremic, beginning at day T, the mortality risk increases by 16%. So this is a really, really dangerous bacteria. And pre-COVID, if anybody asked me, if there is one thing that scared me the most, and it still does, is Staph aureus in the blood, MSSA or MRSA. When it comes to treatment, um, anti-staphylococcal penicillins, the one we have in the formulary here is naphyacillin. They're effective against penicillin as producing staphylococci. And the other are cephalosporins, cefazolin, um, lipopeptide daptomycin or glycopeptide vancomycin is what we have here. And I listed the others like linozolid, but they are not recommended. They are alternatives only when there is no other option. And the way I put together the guidance for how to manage a patient with staph aureus in the blood, I put 10 points and call them 10 commandments to treat staph aureus bacteremia. The first one is consult infectious disease specialist early once blood cultures are reported as positive for staph aureus, MSSA or MRSA. I'm not trying to solicit business for my specialty. This is evidence based that when infectious disease specialists are involved early, the workup is more thorough in terms of getting echo, getting a workup for ruling out metastatic focus of infections, ensuring they get adequate therapy for the duration, the type of the drug, the dose treatment, and the outpatient follow up as well. And you don't need to wait for the full blood culture report. The PCR result is enough for you to initiate the consultation. The next case is of a 20-year-old female admitted with fevers for three days. No other focal complaints. Blood culture, only one bottle has Staph aureus. Chest X-ray negative, urine negative for infection, and this was an MSSA. Is this a contaminant? It's only in one bottle in someone with fever. No other symptoms. What are the next steps? Do we need to treat the staph aureus in one bottle? Can we ignore it as a contaminant? Always consider staph aureus in the blood as a true pathogen. Do not ignore that as a contaminant. This is my second point and second commandment. Always, even if the patient does not have focal complaints, do a thorough workup. Rule out endocarditis, rule out any other focus of infection, but do not ignore it as a contaminant when it's in the blood. Whether it is MSSA or MRSA. Next case is of a young female, 26 year old, presenting with shock, hypertension, tachycardia, and fevers, weakness, rash with erythematous in the extremities, muzzle aches, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, difficulty breathing, swelling of the extremities. Admitted to ICU, requiring mechanical ventilation, pressure support. Imaging study showed severe myositis, required multiple debridements of the extremities, and the cultures grew MRSA. Uh, from the sides, and also from the blood. ECHO was a negative for endocarditis, and patient received IV vancomycin for four weeks from the last debridement. This patient has staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome. A lot of us are familiar with the strep toxic shock, but staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome can be extremely severe and lethal. These patients present with fever, rash. Um, they don't have to have all of this, but disquamation, hypotension, And multi-system involvement, GI symptoms, again, increased CPK levels, um, abnormal kidney um, function, involvement of the mucous membranes, elevated transaminases. you may see thrombocytopenia or other CBC abnormalities, and also involvement of the CNS. And especially you have to think of staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome in a young female who may be using superabsorbent tampons. So this is a case of complicated MRSA septicemia with toxic sock syndrome. So are all cases of staph aureus in the blood considered complicated? I would, at least I would say yes. The answer is yes. There is a definition for uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia, but as far as clinical management is considered, cannot ignore staph aureus in the blood, and all of them should be considered complicated and receive IV antibiotics. There is a definition for uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia, and I'll go over that in a minute. And I don't know if it's a misnomer. They're supposed to update the guidelines. I don't know if this definition will be changed or even completely removed, but for now, there is a definition for uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. These are patients with staph aureus in the blood, whether it's MSSA or MRSA, no evidence of endocarditis, They don't have any implanted prosthesis. Their repeat blood cultures are negative within two to four days. Their fever resolves within 72 hours of initiating the therapy. There is no evidence of metastatic site of infection, no other invasive disease. Um, It's been a few years since I've had a case like this, but um, I had a patient who came in very young. Let me see if that's the one I included. Um, Young guy who came in with a skin abscess and fever, had MRSA in the blood. They did the IND in the ED. His echo was negative. He had no prosthesis. He had no other chronic medical conditions. And his blood cultures were negative in 48 hours. Fever resolved in 24 hours. So no other metastatic focus of infection was found. And by definition, he meets the criteria for an uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. Complicated or uncomplicated, this is my third commandment here. Always treat staph aureus in the blood with IV antibiotics. Do not treat staph aureus bacteremia with oral antibiotics. And appropriate drug dose duration route of administration is extremely important to achieve clinical cure. So for uncomplicated bacteremia, the treatment is for two weeks with IV antibiotics. For MRSA, vancomycin, or daptomycin, you cannot use daptomycin if there is lung involvement because the surfactant inactivates the daptomycin. MSSA, nafcillin or cefazolin for two weeks minimum. The next thing is about, we see a lot of patients reporting beta-lactam or penicillin allergies, and we avoid using cephalosporins and then jump to giving them vancomycin or daptomycin. It's extremely important to note that when vancomycin is used for cefazolin for MSSA, the mortality risk is extremely high. In this particular study, they noted that patients who received therapy with either cefazolin or an anti-staphylococcal penicillin had a 43% reduced hazard of mortality compared with patients who received vancomycin, even after adjusting for severity of the illness or other comorbidities and all of that. So vancomycin is inferior to cefazolin by a significant percent, or even other anti-staphylococcal penicillins to treat MSSA in the blood. So get a thorough allergy history, and if you can do an antibiotic challenge, or and work with your pharmacist if you want to do that, but do not jump to using vancomycin as an alternative option. It is not an equal alternative. So the fourth commandment here is vancomycin is inferior to anti-staphylococcal penicillins or cefazolin to treat MSSA bacteremia. What about nafcillin or cefazolin? Nafcillin is dosed 2 grams every 4 hours, and cefazolin is 2 grams every 8 hours. Much more convenient to give from a nursing standpoint and also after discharge because we're talking about weeks of therapy. Studies have shown my initial training has always been about doing nafcillin but over the last decade or so there've been more and more studies coming out that are showing again and again that they're equally effective and in some studies actually cefazolin showed lower mortality compared to the nafaslin or anti staphylococcal penicillins i'm not sure i would i've bought that into that completely but i agree that they're equally effective also there is less nephrotoxicity because with nafaslin you worry about acute interstitial nephritis And the convenience. And also, not only the immediate outcomes, there was also no difference in the 90-day mortality as well between these two drugs. What about ceftriaxone or cefazolin versus cefazolin for mssa bacteremia? Ceftriaxone is once-a-day option. So once we found cefazolin is as effective as naposlin, then the next thing is, okay, can we even uh, make it even more convenient and use a -a once-a-day option? Ceftriaxone once a day versus cefazolin two grams every eight hours. I'm talking about those with normal renal function. Studies, Some studies have shown, there's conflicting data about this. Some studies have shown that the failure rate is very high if you use ceftriaxone once a day. So just avoid it. And then some other studies have shown they're very comparable. The outcomes are the same. But if you look at penicillins or beta-lactams, these are time-dependent antibiotics. The half-life of ceftriaxone is eight hours. Cefazolin you're dosing every eight hours. It's not that ceftriaxone is a bad drug. I think what we still do not know is, should we be dosing it every 12 hours instead of every 24 hours if we are using it for staph or yes in the blood? So again, I hope the new guidelines address this issue, but if I have to use this for MSSA in the blood, avoid once-a-day dosing, especially in patients with pneumonia, infective endoparditis meningitis, twice-daily dosing may be needed. So if cefazolin, 2 grams Q8 hours is recommended, stay away from ceftriaxone. If you do not have any other option, then you may have to look at other alternatives, should it be daptomycin or ceftriaxone Q12 hours, not once a day. When it comes to amorosabactremia, IV vancomycin, monitor the renal function closely And if you use daptomycin, minimum is six mix per kg, but then more and more data coming out using higher doses, and some patients cannot use if there is lung involvement, need to monitor the CPK, and there is also concern for treatment failure due to emergence of resistance while on treatment, and there's a rare complication of ismophilic pneumonitis. And again, this is really more into the pharmacy and for the ID folks, but we all talk about vancomycin troughs, 15 to 20. 15 to 20 but what the data is showing is that by trying to aim for that trough we're also putting patients into renal failure so the cons- the most recent guidelines are recommending we don't use the troughs we use what they call as a AUC by MIC ratio of 400 to 600 which our pharmacy colleagues will help calculate and guide us with the dosing and this is something even before the guidelines, it's been my ask from our pharmacy colleagues to move away from the trough and use this, but now we also have the guidance, the consensus guidelines that came out sometime during the COVID pandemic, and I know work is happening to move to this type of boasting and move away from the troughs. And I mentioned about the vancomycin MIC being one, and without getting into a lot of microbiology details, if the isolate MRSA, has vancomycin MIC more than two, an alternative to vancomycin should be used. That's one thing to remember. And also for those with M- vancomycin MIC, two or less, the question comes, okay, when do you consider treatment failure from vancomycin and jump to other antibiotics? It's really based on the patient's clinical presentation. Are they clearing the blood? Is the fever resolving? How are they doing clinically? That should guide you to determine if the patient is failing vancomycin therapy. Are we dosing it appropriately? That's the most important thing. And have we done adequate source control? If the patient has an abscess, have we debrided it? Have we removed the prosthesis? Not just jump and say, oh, vancomycin is not working. Let's give some other drug. Antibiotics are not going to cure something that should be fixed surgically. And so source control is extremely important. And what about... Adding second agents like rifampin, gentamicin, there is no overall benefit. The most important thing, again, is source control. For complicated Staph aureus in the blood, the treatment duration is four to six weeks minimum, but it really depends on the extent of infection, their clinical progress. Always, this is my fifth commandment here, document clearance of Staph aureus bacteremia. Even if the fever results, even if patient is clinically doing well, always repeat the blood cultures to make sure the bacteria is not growing in the blood before you discharge them. And repeat blood cultures two to four days after the initial positive cultures and thereafter as needed to document the clearance. The sixth commandment to manage a patient with Staph aureus bacteremia. ECHO is recommended for all patients And transesophageal echo is preferred over transthoracic echo as it is more sensitive in detecting or ruling out endocarditis. And more sensitive when performed five to seven days from the onset of bacteremia. But we're not going to keep a patient here when they're present with bacteremia for five to seven days to do the echo. So you do that the next day, it's negative. You have a high suspicion. They are not clearing the blood. They have other focus of infection. In some cases, you may have to repeat that. If the initial study is negative, always consider repeating it. If there is high clinical suspicion, or if you don't repeat, treat as if they have endocarditis. And again, there are many studies, many studies that have shown that um, the transesophageal echo is more sensitive than transthoracic echo. I mentioned two of them here. Um, And should we do TE in every patient with staph aureus bacteremia? And the answer is yes. Here is my second, seventh commandment, rule out metastatic focus of infection. Extremely important as that will determine source control and your duration of therapy. And the metastatic focus of infection can be in the spine. MRI is preferred with contrast to rule out discitis or early osteomyelitis, CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, MRI brain, if altered mental status present. Some of them may even need a lumbar puncture to rule out meningitis. Rule out septic joint, myositis, or any other extremity involvement. Rule out septic emboli, renal, splenic, CNS, and FOX. So it's very important in patients based on their clinical presentation to rule out metastatic focus of infection. Eighth commandment rule out infection involving any processes, hardware. This is repetitive, but I'm just doing this because this is one of the most common diagnoses we see here. And I want to make sure that we ask the right questions and do the needed workup to make sure these patients have a clinical cure and not having recurrences and not dying from this. Rule out infection involving any processes, hardware, foreign body, and in a patient with staph or dysbacteremia, consider the processes, hardware, infected. That knee doesn't have to look swollen, red, for you to think, oh, that may be infected. Once it's in the blood, it's circulating throughout the body, any of these hardware they're considered seeded or infected. This is a case of a 21-year-old male presented with headache and fever, had a CNS shunt. Blood culture showed MRSA. TE negative for endocarditis, and the CSF from the shunt reservoir was also positive for MRSA. So the next steps. Infectious disease consultation. Shunt is a patient has a shunt. Important to remove the shunt. It should not be replaced until the CSF cultures are repeatedly negative. Rule out endocarditis, TE, repeat the blood cultures, and then IV vancomycin for four to six weeks, but again, depends on the clinical cure and progress. And vancomycin is not a drug that really gets into the CNS very well. But of course, it does a better job once the uh, meninges are inflamed. The question here is, okay, do we use a drug like linozolid that gets better into the CNS um, with vancomycin? Or do we just use vancomycin alone? These are some of the questions I really hope the new guidelines give clarity on. But if CNS is involved, I always use linozolid. And if I have to use it in addition, because linozolid, if a patient has bacteremia, either vancomycin or daptomycin. So I would not use linozolid alone. So if I have to use linozolid because there is CNS infection, I would consider adding it, not using it alone. If the patient did not have the bacteremia, that would be different. This is a case of a 32-year-old female with a tunnel catheter for long-term IV access for TPN coming in with fevers, MSSA in the blood, and ID was consulted. Transsophageal echo negative. Persistent fevers on IV cefazolin. Repeat blood cultures are positive. No other metastatic focus of infection. And there was a hesitation to remove the tunnel catheter just because she needs a long-term access. She has had multiple access over the years, and she really, really wanted to save this one if possible. But uh, we convinced her because um, one that was needed for source control to clear the infection, and two, um, she had the answer herself once because the fevers did not resolve even on the right antibiotic until the catheter came out. And the same thing, her blood did not clear until we removed the catheter. This is a case of a 65-year-old male with fever chills for three days. Recent history of boils, post-oral antibiotics has a positive pacemaker and came in with MRSA in the blood. ID was consulted, T, negative for infective endocarditis, no other metastatic focus of infection identified, and the same thing. If we talk about removing a tunnel catheter, being a diff, uh, trying to avoid doing that procedure, of course, in a 65-year-old, as much as possible, if you remove a pacemaker, if they're dependent on it, we're talking about another procedure to put a new one in, and in between protect them, the life vest or some, or a temporary pacer. So we're talking about coordinating a lot of procedures to make sure they're protected. Um, it's not an easy decision, but it's the right decision to remove the pacemaker, because if we do not do that, he's not going to clear the infection. And even if he does temporarily, once he comes off the antibiotics, there will be recurrence. And there are some studies that have shown that the risk of recurrence of Staph aureus bacteremia in a patient who has a prosthesis that is not removed is up to 90%. So pretty much it's a given we'll be seeing them back. So ninth commandment, source control is extremely important in the management of staph aureus bacteremia. The source could be removal of the IV catheters, prosthetic devices, ING of an abscess, uh, debridement of any um, infection. resection of any bone that's infected, and patients with empyma, they'll need the drainage of the empyma, for adequate source control. And um, I was talking about the patient with an ICD. Extremely important if there is staph aureus in the blood, that we're not going to cure the infection without removing it. We do run into situations where removing it is more complicated, and it's a high-risk procedure for the patient, and there are times where we have to treat with retaining the pacemaker or the processes. In those times, you have to set the expectations to the patient so that they understand what the risk is. And in some of those patients after the IV antibiotics, we treat them or transition them to oral antibiotics, and some of them may have to stay on that for months or long-term. That comes with the risk of C. diff and all the other complications. Speaking of source control, this is a patient with septic knee and MSSA in the blood, and patient needed drainage and debridement of the joint space, along with four weeks of IV cefazolin, even though the TE was negative for endocarditis. Next case is of a 42-year-old female with history of IV drug use coming in, with fevers, chills, back pain, and blood culture showing MSSA. Imaging of the spine was positive for discitis osteomyelitis in the L-spine area, and T-positive or tricuspid valve, endocarditis, valve abscess, and received six to eight weeks of IV cefazolin after the valve surgery. Especially the opioid epidemic pre-COVID, there have been times where our ID service, and even now it happens, again, continues to happen, where we're seeing patients coming in with history of IV drug use and staph aureus in the blood. And the management of them is complicated by multiple factors, one, Valve surgery, you're giving them other processes that can easily get infected once they go back to using the drug. Two putting a line and discharging them where there is a risk, you're giving them a ready access to inject the drugs. But you have to treat staph aureus in the blood with IV antibiotics. So there are all these challenges when it comes to managing these patients with IV drug use. And my um, one of my one of the gaps or my goals is we have a comprehensive program here at ng hedges where we're not just giving them the surgeries and the antibiotics they need but giving them the help they really need to get out of the drug use otherwise we treat them we keep them here for eight weeks we give them the antibiotic do the surgery put them back on the streets to use the drugs and come back again infecting that prosthetic valve i hope we get to that point at some point soon and endocarditis, um, just briefly, I'm not going into the details. We talked about the drugs already about the, for MRSA, vancomycin, or daptomycin, if there is no lung involvement, MSSA, naposlin, or cefazolin. But um, just a couple of things I want to stress again. There is no need to add rifampin or gentamicin for native valve infective endocarditis. And again, um, for prosthetic valve endocarditis, there is role for rifampin. Um, For MRSA, it's been more studied with vancomycin, but the key is evaluation for valve replacement surgery. If you treat these patients with antibiotics but do not replace the valve, they are going to have a high risk of treatment failure or recurrence. And surgical indications Large vegetation, of course, the prosthetic valve, we talked about that, but even in native valve endocarditis, um, this is for native valve endocarditis. If they have persistent fevers or bactremia, new heart block, if they have a perivalvular or myocardial abscess, and they have more than one embolic event during the first two weeks of therapy, large vegetation, valvular perforation or dehiscence, and decompensated heart failure, these are all surgical indications for native valve indefective defective endocarditis. And these are are the scenarios where treating a surgical problem medically is not going to result in a good outcome for the patient. And the patients, we get frustrated. We struggle to clear the staph aureus from the blood. And I think then you have to really go back and get more history to see we didn't miss some processes that is hiding somewhere and make sure if needed, repeat the TEE. Uh, and remove any prostate material, the hardware, and make sure there's adequate source control. So imaging of the abdomen, pelvis, the chest, the spine. I have a patient we're seeing here um, It's Staph aureus where her initial workup was negative for any spinal infection, but we had to image her later after several, actually a couple, almost a couple of weeks later when we imaged. Um, that's when we identified she does have a spine infection and called neurosurgery for source control. And then again, the most important thing is make sure you look at your antibiotic choice, appropriate drug, dose, and duration of the antibiotic. Extremely important. And recurrent bacteremia, relapse or reinfection. We can cure the infection and patient can be colonized with staph aureus and can get a reinfection in the future. But think of relapse in someone who has underlying valvular heart disease, cirrhosis, deep-seated infection, If, again, the risk of relapse is very high, if they had inadequate treatment, inadequate source control, or if there was a process that was seeded that was not removed. And as I mentioned, the risk of relapse in the presence of a foreign body is extremely high. In this particular study, I quoted 83% can relapse versus 21% if no foreign body present. And combination therapy is not of any benefit. Um, The key is source control and um, adequate dosing and uh, the choice of the drug and the duration. But there are sometimes we choose a combination therapy because we have done all of that and patient is still not clearing the blood. And at that point, you're throwing in the kitchen sink. And there is some data for daptomycin and ceftoralin, synergic effect for MRSA, persistent bacteremia, or for NCEF plus ertapenem for MSSA bacteremia or MSSA in the blood, and this is the, my tenth commandment here for managing Staph aureus in the blood: Do not place long-term IV access, thick or a midline, until the repeat blood cultures are negative at least 72 hours, and the fevers are resolved. Ideally, you want to wait the five days, but at least 72 hours, make sure the blood colors are negative and fever has resolved, and adequate source control is achieved. There is no point putting the pick line when the infected pacemaker is still there or that joint that's infected, has, the patient has not yet gone for the surgery. It's different if you need the line because it's life-saving. You need to give the antibiotic suppressors. That's different. But the long-term IV access always wait. Until before the discharge, until they have cleared the infection, and um, just some more data. Again, the risk of readmission is high. Thirty-day readmission rate was around 22% overall, and MRSA, say that Crimea patients had more readmissions. And readmission again is more common in those with endocarditis, immunosuppressive conditions, immunocompromising conditions, or drug use. And um, I already mentioned part of the uh, about this before. But um, especially in patients with sepsis, septic shock, our empiric choice of antibiotics always should include coverage for staph aureus until you know what you're dealing with. And um, because the mortality of staph aureus in the blood can be very high, and each hour delay in appropriate antibiotic administration is associated with 11% increase in the odds of 30-day mortality. And when it comes to management of staph aureus in the blood, again, time to source control. The longer you delay the source control, that will lead to, again, increased mortality. Not only that, increased risk of staying bacteremic for longer periods leads to more focus of more sites being involved, like more metastatic focus of infection. So again, key is right antibiotic, Make sure source control is achieved without any delay and consult infectious diseases early. So in this particular study, so I put the management into 10 commandments, but if you forget everything from the top today, remember one thing, consult infectious diseases in a patient with staph aureus in the blood, whether it is MSSA or MRSA. So these are the things that have shown um, Better outcomes, so implementation of these best practices here, use of appropriate antibiotic therapy, ECHO ID consultation, and early ID consultation, not call them on the day you think patient is ready for discharge, and source control. This bundle resulted in 57.3% reduction in risk-adjusted mortality in patients with staph aureus bacteremia. And it's not just the short-term benefits of reduced mortality or morbidity. In the studies where they followed these patients long term, they have shown that reduced incidence of recurrence improved all cause mortality even up to five years following initial episode of staph aureus bacteremia in patients who had ID consultation at their initial episode. And this is um, another gray area I wanted to touch on where a patient presents with MRSA bacteremia with necrotizing pneumonia. ID consult early. IV vancomycin, cannot use IV daptomycin, repeat the blood cultures to document clearance, echo to ensure there's no endocarditis, rule out other focus of infection, and we know that linozolid has better lung penetration. So do we use linozolid alone? The answer here is I hope the new guidelines give more clarity on it. But linozolid is a static drug not recommended to treat patients who are bacteremic. So this is a case where I may consider adding linozolid. Again, not a very evidence-based practice, but you really are trying to get good source control here. So that's my thought process. But the data for synergy is more in favor for daptomycin with ceftoralin. And this patient received four weeks of therapy, with IV vancomycin, um, but again, that role for linozolate to treat the pneumonia, I hope the new guidelines will give us more clarity. And just like clindamycin reduces the toxin production with strep, linozolate is another drug which inhibits protein synthesis and reduces toxin production due to staph aureus. They are not routinely recommended to be added to the standard therapy, But again, we'll have to see, but some experts may consider adding them in select scenarios like the CNS or the necrotizing pneumonias. Um, Oral step-down therapy. I really am not going to go into the details at this point. One key takeaway for you for this talk is IV, um, staph aureus in the blood is treated with IV antibiotics. I'm aware of some of the literature that is coming about oral step-down therapy after the initial IV course but I would recommend that we wait for the new guidelines before we change the course of how we manage these patients. And in select patients where the processes cannot be removed, uh, we may consider long-term suppressive antimicrobials, but again, have to worry about C. Diff, development of resistance, all of that. So just a recap, consult infectious diseases early if there is staph aureus in the blood, MRSA or MSSA, And always consider Staph aureus, even if it is in one bottle, as a true pathogen. Do not ignore it as a contaminant. And always treat Staph aureus in the blood with IV antibiotics. And make sure you're using the right drug, right dose for the right duration, and the route of administration is important. Vancomycin is inferior to beta-lactams, the anti-staphylococcal penicillins or cefazolin, to treat MSSA in the blood. Always document clearance of the staph aureus bacteremia, And every patient with staph aureus in the blood needs echo. Transesophageal echo is more sensitive to detect or rule out endocarditis. Rule out metastatic focus of infection. Rule out infection involving any processes, hardware, is concerned for seeding of them. And source control is extremely important in the management of staph aureus bacteremia. And do not place long term IV access until the repeat blood culture negative fever is resolved and adequate source control is achieved. That's all I have. Any questions?
0: Thank you, Dr. Manapali. Do we have any questions? None online. No questions, my friend.
1: Okay, I confused. You Thank guys you very all. much, Dr. Manapali. <laughs>